listening to the Retro Sermons Podcast. Find out more at NorthColumbusChristians.com slash Retro Sermons. So we'll turn to the 10th chapter of the book of John. I want to study with you a lesson. It's kind of a different sort of lesson as far as I'm concerned. I, I find a good thought here and I want to share it with you and I believe it's one of those things that we can appreciate as we look into the Bible and understand that it is designed to provoke our thought. The the setting is revealed in the context. I want to read starting in verse 22. And uh, I don't know whether you remember this closely or not, but this chapter is a chapter where Christ spoke of himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd, and the sheep, and he had a lot of things to say. In regard to the obligation of the sheep to the shepherd and the care of the shepherd for the sheep. And uh, many things that remind us about his concern for us, I think, come out of this. So whatever we learn out of this particular reading, it is not to contradict the thought that Christ has great concern. The record said, starting in verse 22, it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How, does, how long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I have an idea that this was spoken to a mixed group. I am sure there were some there that were uh, serious, sincere, interested in what was going on, perhaps with high expectations of whatever good Christ would bring to the world. And I believe that there were a lot of folks there who wanted to trap Jesus, who, who just simply did not believe in him, who did not accept his message, who were not willing to see his efforts succeed. And so their design was far different than perhaps others in that same crowd. And as it was so many times, I think Christ uh, was uh, called upon to try to uh, work in such a way so as to help those who wanted help, and then at the same time to not satisfy those who were just out for their own ends. And this is one of those times where he has some very strong things to say. And the point I want to make with you is to think of this expression or this question that they bring to him, Lord, tell us plainly. And evidently, the ones who raised that question were not sincere. They did not want to really know what Christ had in mind. Uh, that their intent was different and their question was simply sham. And I'll try to go into that in just a moment. But it says this was at the Feast of Dedication. And it was winter. We don't always have such a a detailed idea about when and where things took place in the ministry of Christ. In the winter, it would be perhaps close to what we think of as the 25th of December or sometime in that general time frame. And this particular feast is one that you don't read about in your Bibles other than this. It's a, and I, I've often wondered about this particular feast. It, evidently, Christ recognized it. He took part in it. Uh, at least he observed and he was there. And yet this feast was ordained after the Old Testament had been concluded. 
during that period between the Testaments, where you, if you read secular history, you find a lot of activities that were going on. And during that time, part of it at least, the Jews were subdued uh, by the uh, some of the Greeks who did not appreciate and understand what was going on involved. In fact, uh, Antioch Epiphanes, who was the ruler at this time, back in the times when this was the feast was set, was a man who devoted himself to trying to destroy Judaism. And he had some very horrific uh, laws that he had made to the Jews. Uh, for example, he had forbidden circumcision. And if a woman circumcised her baby, he killed the baby and hung it around the mother's neck and then killed her. At least that was a, that was a penalty for that particular thing. He brought pigs into the temple and had them run through the temple as an offense to the Jews who couldn't you know the idea toward uh, swine is very well known. He profaned the court temples. They brought in prostitutes to do their, apply their trade in the very house of God. And so he was a, a very terrible ruler as far as the Jews were concerned. And uh, at one time he had 80,000 Jews exterminated uh, because he just hated the Jewish system. He hated every Jew, and he did his best to try to get rid of them. Well, uh, the Maccabees brothers, who are the dominant uh, family during that time, decided they were going to overthrow the the rule of this man and his system, and they set out to do it. And after many years and great effort, they finally were victorious. And they cleansed the temple, they purified the ornaments and the things that were there, and they reinstated the worship of God after three years of having it polluted by these heathens who had so determined to set aside the things of God. And they set up this feast. And the feast was designed to, to commemorate the victory, to exalt the fact that God's way had been restored. And it's, this feast is also called the Festival of Lights. And the reason it's called the Festival of Lights is because during that feast, that the, the very first feast, when they first set it up, there wasn't enough oil, at least as far as human resources were concerned, to, to maintain the lights during the feast. But evidently, through some means, the lights still burn. And throughout the course of the week, I'm told that there are two different versions of this. One version is it started out with eight lights, and then seven lights the next night, and then six lights, and then finally down to one. The other version is it started out with one, and then two, and then three, up to seven. But anyway, it is called the Festival of Lights, and it meant a lot to the Jews. Uh, in their history, that wasn't so far removed that they could not remember and think about the things that had happened to them and uh, rejoice that God had seen fit to be able to have them restored to their former place. It was in this setting that Christ uh, made these comments. And evidently, Christ confronted these people on their own grounds. And it seems to me that we ought to try to explore this idea because when they cried out, tell us plainly, then I'm sure Christ's response was not what they expected in regard to that. But I, I think there are some things I can assume or conclude from that. First of all, I think that it's right for us to recognize that it's right to be plain. Christ did not, and I think significantly so, he did not say, I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm not going to give you any plainness. In fact, his answer was, I've already told you. You already have the answer. He wasn't trying to say, I'm not going to give you an answer. He just simply did not appreciate their attitude toward those things that were involved in that. Christ did not condemn asking one to be plain. And let me tell you, 
it is in order for us today to be plain. And you ought not to want teachers not to be plain. You ought not to want to have people tell you in some obscure way what you need to hear. But plainness is, is really worthwhile. It's a good thing to have and a good thing to do. And I think especially so because we have to understand that the issues involved in our consideration of God's teaching are so significant. You know, this is not just a question of some academic concern that you and I might want to know what is right or what is wrong, so we might reflect upon that in, in some superficial way. Our salvation's involved here, and when salvation's involved, we ought to want to have plainness. You ought to want the preacher to be plain. I've never really understood the mind that would tell me as a preacher of the gospel, do not teach on this subject. Or do not say anything about this matter because it would offend some folks. But you see, plainness ought to override that. We ought to always want to be plain. You ought to always want your teacher to be plain to make sure people don't understand it or misunderstand it, to make sure they see the things. And another reason, I think, that we ought to have this desire, at least as far as these kind of things are concerned, is because only by revelation can we know these things. You see, I I don't have the power to tell you what God would have you to do, apart from what God has already revealed. I can't give you an answer. But we ought to have a plain road to follow. We ought to understand that this road is plain. It ought to be set forth for us in very plain ways. And so we ought to think of this as a, as a valuable thing to be plain. I understand that so far as you and I are concerned that, that God in his concern for us would surely, would surely want us to know. And the fact that he loves us, the fact that he has predicated salvation on a certain course of life, makes it clear that we need to know that course and it ought to be said. And evidently God wants us to hear it. He wants us to see it plainly. So whatever you think of in this context, when Christ did not immediately respond as they warned him to, you understand it's not because that he rejects plainness. It's not because the question involved is not significant. It's not because that you and I can find the answer anywhere else than that. But I think we have to realize that whenever plainness occurs, that it is simply in harmony with the will of God. But now, you know, sometimes, whenever a person is plain, you don't always see it as plain. Christ here said, in effect, I've been plain. That's his answer to them. He said, I told you, and you believe me not. He had recognized who he was. He had claimed to be the son of the Father. He had asserted by this time, even back to chapter 4, that he told the woman to well he was the Messiah. So it already was out that he was what he claimed to be. And so it wasn't a matter of misinformation. It was a matter of lack of information here. Christ had said, I told you. But the problem was, he didn't say it like they wanted him to. And they were trying to get him to say it so that they could find something to quarrel with him about. And he wasn't about to do that. And sometimes I think you and I have to appreciate the fact that we ought to be plain so that people can see it, but sometimes they don't see it. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, Christ gives us, a, a, a I think, an explanation of parables. He tries to make us understand and sometimes we wonder why Christ did not just come right out and say certain things, but why he told a story, like he told the story of the sower, in which he portrays some aspects of the kingdom. And other things, if you read the 13th chapter, you find a number of parables told there. And each one reveals some aspect of the kingdom that might not be as easily seen had it not been told in just that way. But he said the reason why he spoke in parables was because some people seeing will not see and hearing they will not hear, neither will they understand. 
This people's heart is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed. And for those people, it's hard to be plain. You just cannot be plain enough for them. And in speaking, Christ realized that their motive was bad, and so he did not even try to clear their hearts and to make them see, because they were determined not to see. And even though he had been plain, you need to understand that that plainness was such as was contrary to their concept, and so they just simply passed it off. But I think sometimes you have to realize that it may be time that we might not be plain. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, Christ said, Do not cast your pearls before swine. I don't always know exactly how to carry out that commandment. I don't know how to read necessarily swine. I have an idea that my obligation is to err on the side of charity here and not to try to too rashly suppose that somebody is so far removed from truth that they cannot understand it or will not receive it. Now, Christ had that ability to do that. I cannot do that. But at least it shows you there's a time when you don't have to talk to people. You know, some of us just kind of feel compelled. If a person asks me a question, I'm going to tell him an answer. Well, I think that you ought to always be ready to give an answer. But I think sometimes if it's obvious that this answer will not be received, and it's obvious that a person is trying, just trying to find something to, to come back upon you upon that you need not answer. He said, don't cast your pearl before swine. So sometimes it's not necessary to be plain. But in that regard, because people are of that nature. And sometimes the very nature of the message was such that plainness was not the best thing. I think of the book of Revelation, for example. And people all the way through time have struggled with the book of Revelation. And the reason for it is it was given to us in signs. In fact, that's what John was told. Uh, that uh, He said this concerning the message it was signified or uh, given in sign terms by the angel to the servant John. And you ask the question, why did God give revelation in science? Why did he not just teach and point out? And I believe the book reveals the relationship between the Roman Empire and, and God's church and the various things that happened there. But, you know, that was said at a very critical time, and the church was being prosecuted by the Roman Empire. And I believe, and this is just my thought of things, that God was purposely obscured. He did not come right out and say things, but he rather gave them signs because he wanted people who wanted to know to have the information. But he did not want it to be said in such a way as to bring further persecutions. And so he gave it so that those who wanted to see it could see it, but those who did not want to see it would not understand it. And so that, at that time, he was not as plain as you might have wished for him to be. And Christ says in John 16, that sometimes I spoke in parables that people might not see. And it was that with that design or that purpose in mind. But I'm going to tell you, we need to think in terms of that which is plain. And by plain, we simply mean what is clear. What is obvious, what you can detect and realize, it is that way. And it seems to me like that, that ought to be our commitment. Every teacher of the Bible ought to want to be plain. I know a long time ago when I set out to try to preach it, one of my purposes was that I might be able at the end of a lesson to have it, nobody say, I didn't understand your lesson. I want to see. I want you to see what I'm trying to say. I might not say it right. I might be guilty of some mistake or error, but whatever it is, I want to be plain. I've always felt like that's a high comment for us to make about a teacher. He's plain. That you can understand him. That you know what he says, and you can see it clearly. Some people like to speak in glowing terms or in, in flowery language that sometimes gets in the way of understanding. 
I don't think that is commendable by any teacher. I don't think we ought to try that. We ought to be plain. God wants us to be that way. And you know, plainness is worthwhile to the right kind of people. Whenever you speak to plainness and you say things that are necessary to be said, then the eyes that see and the ears that hear and the hearts that understand appreciate that. They're glad to hear it. They're glad for other folks to hear it. One of the corresponding efforts that I have encountered through the course of my preaching is that I've got some folks who think they know the truth, but they don't want me to tell it. And they want folks to be told so that they can see it, because you'll run them off or some whatever. And it seems to me like that we people that want to hear the truth will not be deterred by that. We might be disappointed. We might be uh, hurt if what we are told clearly is in conflict with what we now are. But, you know, that's a necessary step along the way getting right. You have to be told when you're wrong. You have to understand that this is the way that you must go, and then the process you have to give up some things that you already hold in view. So eyes that hear, uh, eyes that see and ears that hear, and hearts that understand, they are not hurt by plaintiffs. It's the other folks that are hurt. Christ said it's those folks that don't want to hear, and so I talk in parables, so they cannot understand. But you know, a person who's truly of the right spirit in God, he wants to hear it. He wants to hear plainly. The Bible said in Acts 17, describing the Bereans, he said they were noble people because they received the word with all readiness of mind. They were glad to hear it. I have an idea some of those folks were shocked, surprised by the content of the message. They weren't prepared for that. But they were prepared to hear the truth in whatever it was. And whenever they heard what they heard, then they began to search the scriptures to make sure these were true things. Now, there's nothing wrong with that spirit. I've never felt like it was an offense to me if somebody questioned what I told them. And so, wait a minute, I'd like to study that. That's a good thing to do. And that's a good way to be, that you want to make sure that you know it's right before you believe what somebody says. But noble people want to have it plain. They don't want to have this thing covered up or said in such a way that only a few understand it. They want it to be plain. Let me just sum that up by saying the people who are designed to go to heaven... They don't care about plainness. They're not worried about that. And that really speaks to a mindset. There are some people who, by their very attitude, judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul encountered such folks. And those were people who had judged themselves unworthy by their response to the teaching. They didn't want it. They wouldn't listen. They would not comply, even though I'm sure Paul was plain. In fact, if you read that sermon that he preached in the 13th chapter of Acts, it was full of plainness and offensive to some because it, it kind of detailed the progress of Israel through the years in which they had uniformly rejected God. And that wasn't easy and pleasant to hear. And then during the time of Stephen, you know, the people that Stephen preached, they didn't want to hear it. But they didn't misunderstand it. They got the point. And God did not tell Stephen, now you did the wrong thing, son, because you spoke out here when you ought to have been sort of easy with that. Evidently, it was good for them to be plain. And it was good for people to hear it plain. And I propose to you as a general rule, we ought to understand that's the way it ought to be. Our teachers ought to be plain. Our hearts ought to be open to plainness. We ought not to... In fact, I think we waste time if we're not really careful to make sure we hear it plainly. And we're taught in the ways that God would have us to teach it. Let me suggest some things that occur whenever this effort is being made. And I believe that whenever we hear the message, and I, I believe this is the way God has set it out, 
I think that when you are confronted with things that you need to understand, that you are under an obligation to God. And this, in a kind of a way, it tests you. God is seeing what kind of person you are. But sometimes we fail the test. We don't always respond as we should, and that indicates a bad attitude upon our part. But there are certain things that we prove, or not prove, as the case may be. For example, I am really tested as to my zeal to obey God by plain teaching. Uh, I think I've told you the story before, and uh, it, it bears repeating I, uh, uh, that uh, I have this uh, Methodist lady who was studying with me. And I was preaching to her, and uh, for several weeks we went on there in just a good way, and she was commending every lesson. She thought it was great. And, I, you know, I had decided I'd preach on the things that, that were different between our two faiths. So I would condemn sprinkling, and she would come out and shake my hand and talk about how good that was. And i talk about uh, baptizing babies, and that was still okay. And, and i talk about instrumental music, and she still was going along and talking about what a good preacher I was. And I finally realized somewhere we weren't communicating here, because I knew I wasn't saying what she wanted me to say. So I decided one day I'm going to get up and say the Methodist Church teaches this. Last time she ever talked to me. Because I was playing it, really, I think it proved. And I didn't do that meanly. I don't you understand. I'm not, I'm not really that cocky. I don't believe in doing things that way. But I think there's a point in time when people have to realize that this message is for you. That we're not talking about somebody down the road here. And incidentally, when you read Christ, he doesn't talk about folks down the block. He doesn't talk about this general idea of sin somewhere. He talks about these things that you need to hear because it's you. That's involved. And I think we're tested. Do I want to really do what God says? I might have a uh, struggle to try to see this is good for me. I might uh, hurt because it's in conflict with my own current conduct and it really makes me look bad. But if I want to do what God tells me to, if I really want to do that, it won't matter how plain you get. It won't matter how strongly you put this forth. If it attacks me, if it says what I'm doing is it in question, then my desire to obey God should take over. And sometimes it's the very plainness with which we hear something that is going to test our ability and willingness to obey. You think about the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Christ could have condemned, in a general way, selfishness. He could have talked about various things that might have, at least in his own mind, satisfied his feelings, I must make sure I don't go without saying something about this. But you know, that man came and said, Jesus, I want to know what it takes to have eternal life. And Jesus says, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to sell everything you've got. And you've got to give it to the poor and you've got to follow me. And that man went away sorrowing. Really that truth, that plain statement, tested his will to obey. So many times that's the course of our lives. I think something else is at stake here, and it is called into question by what we hear when it is a matter that points out some mistake or error that we have made. And we all profess sorrow. We say, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. Do you, are you really sorry? Really, your God is sorrow tested by the plaintiffs which you hear something. And I think of the case of the Corinthian church where the Apostle Paul felt that he had to be plain. church there was condoning fornication. They had allowed this man to persist in their number without correction. And Paul just came right out and said, you guys are you're in bad shape here. You're not doing right. You fellas ought to be crying for this fella. And you instead you give him comfort. 
And what you have to do is this. Well, evidently, he found out they did have true godly sorrow. That they were sorry for what they'd done. The church was so sorry, they almost ran that man away with their strong treatment of him. But he was so sorry that he corrected the mistake. Just think about how long that might have dragged out had Paul not been playing. Had he just sort of danced around it and talked about it in a general way, you know, we ought not to have people who commit fornication. He said, you've got this guy, and you're doing this, and you need to do this. And it tested their, their commitment to doing right. And I believe that's what truth does to you. And it tests your will to do right in your correction of those things that are involved. It also, I think, will put you to the test as how much do you love God. You see, really and truly, if you love God, you're going to do what God wants you to do. It may, again, not be what you thought he wanted at the time. You may have been uh, instructed differently. But if you love God, then you'll do whatever it is that God wants you to do. And you know that what he commands is a demonstration of your love. So when you hear a plain idea, when you understand, here's a thing that I must do, I must quit doing this, how much do you love God? Because that's what you're proving. Along with everything else that you demonstrate by refusing to go along or not, you are proving how much you love God. And I don't believe that God is, is sorry that you're having to prove that. I believe that's part of his design. That he wants us to show, to show that we are what we claim to be. It's easy to talk religion. It's easy to claim faith. It's easy to profess that we love each other. It's easy to profess that we love God. But this tests our faith. Depending on how plain we are. And it would again, I think, call into question the amount of our loyalty to truth. How much do we want the truth to prevail? I tell you, I don't hear much today about truth in religion. I don't know that people are so concerned about truth. In a general way, we might act like we respect truth. But when you talk about what truth is, and when you say that this has to be taught because it is the truth and because it has this effect, then I don't hear much of that. But the child of God has to be loyal to the truth. And it should be so much to him that it comes first. It comes before his family. It comes before his friends. It comes before anything in his life. He wants the truth. And it ought to be paramount to him. You have in John 12 people who had a degree of faith. The Bible said many of the chief priests believed on him, but they did not confess him. They were not loyal to him. They did not stand for him even though they in their heart realized he was the Messiah. And they knew that they ought to support him, but they would not. I think sometimes plain teaching brings out an open, are you really for me or against me? And if you're for him, then you'll show that by supporting the truth, by upholding the truth, by not apologizing for the truth, by welcoming plain speaking. And it seems like that ought to be the order of the day. And these people who have their truth tested, their attitude tested, then you understand that people like this want the truth. I tell you, through the years, I have always been gratified to find a, a core group of people who really did not care how plain I got. Or anybody else, and I, I'm just using myself as an illustration because I have taught in those circumstances, who just wanted to have it shell down and make sure that people understand that. And whatever was said, if it was true, they supported that. And I know that sometimes I was awkward, and I didn't always say it in the best, uh, smoothest manner, and sometimes I might have been abrasive in what I said, but if it was the truth, I found folks who were willing to say, you know, say on, because it is the truth. 
And people like that want that to be said. You think about the folks you know. Think about your family. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, or your daughter. And you think about what's in store for those people who do not know God. Would it not be in their interest to hear plainly the course in life they must choose before they would ever have any hope of God? It is distressing to me when I see people who believe they're okay. And I meet people who just are strongly convinced they're going to heaven. And I know in my heart of hearts when I have read my Bible that's not the case. And I'm not trying to be a judge. But God says if you don't obey him, you will be destroyed. And these people are not in obedience. I want them to hear the truth at least one time. I want somebody to say what needs to be said to them. In my family, you're not going to offend me. If you say to anybody in my family what needs to be said. And to make them understand this is the course that you must follow. And people who want to know will not be hurt by that. And people who respect plainness and people who realize the value of truth, they're not going to be hurt by that. And it doesn't matter what it is. What we need to know is if this is right. That's what the folks in Berea wanted to know. They searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And once that was determined and established, then they received it gladly. And I have an idea some of those things at first might have been contradictory. You think about the things we must say. And I don't know, uh, I realize that people are trying to find a reason not to listen. And uh, it doesn't go off well when, when they say, you're going to hell. And I don't say that uh, in that way. But you know, I question the thought that at some time we must make these people understand that their present course will lead them to hell. And I'm trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm just simply saying that truth demands that they eventually learn. Now, some people would raise that point because they're trying to disagree with you. And it's offensive to say that. And I don't, I, again, I'm not saying say that. But I'm saying that the, at the end of the day, they must understand that. Because it is not a, a iffy matter. It's not an optional course. You do not have the, the, the choice if you want to go to heaven. And uh, so I, I guess I, sometimes I even disagree with my fellow teachers, because they seem to think that maybe these things ought to be kind of skirted around. I'd like folks not to ask that question. I'd like for people not to throw that up as a, as a barrier. But somewhere along the way, we must teach that there's only one way. And folks, you may not be in it. That's the problem. You may not be in it. There's only one way. The Bible says over in Matthew chapter 7, there's a narrow way that leads to heaven. Only if you find it. Out of the whole mass of folks who need to find it, only a few will find it. I think they're the ones who won't have it plain. Who want to hear it like it ought to be said. So it comes to the matter of the church. I'm sorry, but there's only one. I realize that the course I'm following may be not the one, but I only can find one. And so I, I cannot understand how anybody could be served in their search for truth if they are made to think that that's a question up for grabs. There's only one church. That's all there is. You cannot find another. You cannot find anything that even smacks of another. Just one. Christ only built one. Only truth can establish one. If you have only one truth, you have only one church. And there's so many things that point in that direction. And yet I, I know people who are very uncomfortable when you start talking about there's only one church. 
uh, it seems to me if you want plainness, that that would be the course you'd follow. And people who want to be plain will not object to that. When it comes to the plan of salvation, there's only one plan of salvation. There's only one set of conditions that God has imposed upon us, and, and that applies to everybody. And I'm sorry, you can't go to heaven unless you comply with those conditions. Unless you believe, Paul says, you cannot know God. That's Hebrews 11, verse 6. Unless you repent, you all perish. That's what Christ said in Luke 13. And with the mouth confessions made unto salvation, that's Romans 10 and verse 10. Those are concrete facts. That's exactly what God has said. We cannot skirt around those matters. And just as clearly, God said you must be baptized. He that believed in his baptized should be saved. Paul was told to be baptized and wash away his sins. Baptism saves us, Peter says. I cannot understand a teacher who thinks that anything less than that is sufficient. That we cannot say those things or be that clear without hurting somebody's feelings. And I guess what I fall back on is the examples I get out of the Bible. I don't find any Bible teacher ever holding back those truths for some better time to reveal them. I understand that we need to do this in, in circumstances where it conducive to reception. But at the same time, people need to know the truth, the whole truth. And they didn't know it applies to them. So whenever it comes to those questions, it seems like they must be taught. And when it comes to the matter of how the Christian ought to conduct themselves, it seems like that we ought to want plainness. I've been criticized because I insist on people assembling when assemblies are, are appointed. Because, you know, you, after all, people, you know, if you, if you just insist on that, you'll drive them off. Well, I, I cannot find anything in my Bible that suggested it's an optional matter to assemble. The Bible said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That seems to be pretty plain to me. And incidentally, that's a divine statement that is an obviously clear statement. What, what does that leave the person who doesn't assemble, you see? Well... If you want to be, if you're trying to do God's will, if you love God, if you want to go to heaven and that's your supreme desire, then why would you care if it was made very clear? And if you've got a brother who just comes once a week, and who is weak in his, in his faith, does he not need to hear that? And he ought to be told plainly, you're not doing right, that your service falls short because you're not assembling like you ought to assemble. And it appears to me that these things ought to be taught Giving is not a good, pleasant subject. Folks don't like to be told that you must give and you must be generous. Uh, evidently, we have so much interest in what we have as applied to our own uses. It's not pleasant to hear that you are not giving enough to God. And I, I guess in a way we've reached the point where we say, well, I don't want to meddle. And so I won't tell a fellow. I've always felt like one of the views of elders is to help counsel people so they can understand what they're giving ought to be. And I realize that you can't make a fellow give, and I understand that after all that's done, he might decide not to. But he ought to have the choice. He ought to see it, have an informed choice as to what he ought to give, in terms, not just in dollar terms. But at least to understand he gives as he's been prospered. He's to give generously. He's to give cheerfully. Those are things that are clear. And it ought to be taught that way. So that's another matter that we ought to be, want to be plain about. And in living for Christ, we ought to be just as plain as we know how to be. To tell people what you ought to do as a Christian. God tells you that. There's so much in the New Testament that deals with that. You, you take the book of Colossians, the third and fourth chapters. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. 
The whole context is designed to show you what kind of person you ought to be, what you need to eliminate and what you need to acquire. Things like modesty and things like truth and things like working for a living and various things. Those are clear. And it looks to me like we ought to teach that. And nobody ought to be offended by that because it is what God has said and the person who wants to go to heaven. And the person who loves God, he wants to hear that. Although it might fly in the face of his current lifestyle, he needs to know it. And we need to be plain whenever we bring that forward. Other things have that same ambivalence that we deal with sometimes. The work of the church ought to be, I think, plainly set forward. And more and more in our time, it is difficult for people to really come to terms with what the work of the church is. It's, it's not to entertain. And the work of the church is not to make us feel good. The work of the church is that we edify one another, build them up in the faith, that we serve one another in ministry, and that we establish or teach so that people might be converted. That's the I don't know of anything else that's the work of the church. I cannot find any other activity that God assigns to the collective in those three. And yet, you know, we have, uh, during my lifetime, I've seen the church divided over the question of what the church's work is. And we have churches building buildings for things like basketball games and, and weddings in the church. They would build chapels for that. As though these comprise the work of the church. Well, I want to be plain about that. And I think that folks who want to go to heaven want to have that said plainly. No, no question about that, you see, whenever we do what's right. A very frustrating area of studies today has to do with divorce and remarriage. And it's uncomfortable because a lot of people have gone through the process and sometimes they might not be in the right position. But that doesn't excuse the one who teaches, who knows what God says, from being plain about it. Being plain about the one cause for divorce. If a person is not put away for the cause of fornication, God does not allow that person to remarry. That ought to be a plain teaching of God. It ought to be what the preacher said without equivocation. And it's uh, even though it touches a lot of people, I know I have in the past, I have encountered folks that I thought were good prospects for salvation. I remember in particular one couple that my wife and I met and worked with up in Illinois. Just nice people. And we started Bible study, and we went through a course of study in which we had about eight lessons. And they were just coming along fine, and things were just working swimmingly, and I, I, I did not realize that they had this problem. And it came to the matter, the man said he wanted to be baptized. And it just thrilled me that he wanted to be baptized. And somewhere along the way, in the process of talking that night about being baptized, it came out that this was his second wife, and she was her, he was her second husband. I said, okay, we've got to talk some. And after we studied and realized that these people had not had scripture grounds, and you know, I told them, the first thing you've got to do is repent. That requires you to recognize that you're living in a bad relationship, and that's the last we saw then. And I, I do not know any other way to deal with that. And you might have some other solution to that. But it seems to me like whenever God is so clear about divorce and remarriage, and God has defined the grounds for which you might accuse one of adultery, that you and I have to recognize that. We cannot equivocate and we cannot compromise that or soften it up. But people don't want to be plain about that. And I'm just saying that if you have plainness in your heart, those will not deter you. Church discipline is another area that I think that we need to be plain about. 
You see, God wants us to exercise discipline. He wants us to realize that when one of our number fails and is not doing right, he must not be allowed to continue that way without some effort upon the part of the church. Here's this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's going the wrong way. He's living with his father's wife. He needs to be told that. The church needs to take action. And thankfully, when Paul told them their duty, they responded in the affirmative. They did right. But so many times, people don't want to be told that the church has to exercise discipline. you got a brother here who's not acting right. God says you talk to him about it. You make sure he understands his course is not right. And ultimately, if he doesn't correct the matter, you make sure the church has to do something about that. Now, that's plain teaching, but I think that's true teaching. And I think that God wants us to say things in, in just about that way. But it doesn't always satisfy folks, and sometimes we've got churches here. I've, I've known of churches that I've been involved with, not necessarily directly, because we didn't stay involved long, but I've known churches who never had a discipline action in their whole history. It seemed to me like, you know, it's just unthinkable that a church is so perfect that you never had anybody there who strayed away. And yet there are some folks who just did not do that as a matter of course. I wound up with a church up in Beckley, West Virginia, who'd never practiced discipline. We set out to do it, and several folks left us because of it, because we had people there who just uh, maybe hadn't been to church for a year. Maybe we're out doing things they ought not to be doing and need to be corrected there. And it seems to me like you know, we only have one choice there. And God's teaching on discipline must be observed and recognized. Paul said the man who will not walk orderly, that we must mark him. We must not have no company with him is the word I think he used in Second Thessalonians 3. If a man here is not walking according to God's order, then he must be, uh, we have no company with him. And so the thought would be, and whatever, that the teaching here, whatever discipline requires, it should be a plain part of our teaching. A clear understanding about it, so that we might always live in regard to it. Even our attitudes are under question, and I don't mean that I have the right to judge your heart. But you know, Paul talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he shows you how the works of the flesh, and there's not all are activities, some of them are, are attitudes, if you have bitterness. If you have strife, and if you are contentious, those are matters that God says you have to deal with. And people cannot continue in that way and still please God. So even attitudes must be addressed. And the things that God encourages, like love and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience, they should be advocated and they should be promoted. Because that's what God intends, and it should be a plain matter of teaching. But I, I think that when we try to appreciate what God has in mind for us, that we come to understand that really the things that we think of as, as suitable may not always be. And I freely confess to you, I'm not always sure as to what ought to be said at what time. But I do know this. When I read the work of the first century Christians, I do not find the same amount of beating around the bush that I see advocated by so many today. I, I, the order of the day was plain. Whenever Christ spoke to these people, he did not say, I was not plain. He said, in fact, when they said, tell us plainly, he said, I've already told you. He said, you know already, you have seen enough evidence, my works prove. So you're not without information. You have already seen and will not accept. And I believe there's that kind of person. When they see, they will not accept it. And I believe that God puts us to the test. We have to prove our sincerity. 
We have to prove if we really want to go to heaven, if we really want to serve God, if we really want the truth to prevail, we have to prove that by the way we deal with those matters. Lord, tell us plain. And I just, uh, I want to search my heart to make sure I want to hear anything. See, even what Ori did to me this morning, he told me plainly I'd made a mistake in my book. <laughs> I'm not sure I accepted that way. <laughs> but you understand, whatever it is, we need to know. And it doesn't matter to me whether I made a mistake in my book. And then I'll just tell you that right off. But there are some things that I make a mistake about you better tell me. And better get it right. And I better be willing to hear it. And it seems to me like all of us ought to be that way. We ought to want to hear it. Whatever it costs us, whatever pain it brings about, tell us plain. We need to know. And hopefully that's the spirit that we have in this assembly tonight. We need to study. We need to think about what God has in mind for us. We need to improve every day. There's something in your life that you need to correct. We hope you think of that and make the correction you need to make while you have time and while you have opportunity. We want to sing the song that we've selected. If you need to make a correction, come forward while we stand here while we sing.